Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of Formatted to Fit Your Screen, the show where two people who have seen a movie have a conversation. I'm your host, Zach Tennant, and on this episode, I was joined by the wry and incisive Scott Hamilton from the bands Ken Mode, Adeline, Grey Light District. Scott is a cool dude. Scott is someone who I didn't learn about the kids in the hall from him, but he taught me to understand the kids in the hall, and that's something that comes up on this episode a bit. As we discuss the 1996 film Brain Candy, to date the only theatrically released feature by the comedy troupe The Kids in the Hall from Canada, we had a great conversation here. As you'll hear, Scott has um, no end of things to say about this movie, and we cover the influence of The Kids in the Hall, what they meant to us in different ways growing up in different eras, and what it continues to mean to us today. And I think that this episode really turned out well. If you're enjoying the show, thank you. You can follow us on social media at Formatted to Fit. You can send emails if you want to to formattedtofitpod at gmail.com. If you want to request episodes, do sponsorship, um, review the episodes. I'd prefer if you have bad reviews that you just email them to me. I will read them. I read them anyways. I'd prefer to just keep that between us. Enjoy the episode, everybody. So we're here today talking to Scott Hamilton of the bands Adeline, Ken Mode, Grey Light District. We're here today to talk about a movie that I first saw with Scott, not on the first time that he had seen it, but from 1996, Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, directed by Kelly Macon. And Scott, I understand that you have a long history with the kids in the hall. Well, like my my past with the kids in the hall, it's like my I don't. It's it's almost difficult to uh, to get started on it because I can't. I, I can barely remember a time culturally where they didn't factor into my thinking and factor into the way I process art. Like I almost arguably take them a little too seriously. Um because I was introduced to them at such a young age, obviously way before Brain Candy. Well, I shouldn't even say way before Brain Candy because I was just think- talking to my wife about the other uh, this the other day about when that when the movie came out because I was still in elementary school when the movie came out. Um, so there wasn't even that big of a you know time differential between when I started becoming a fan and when the movie came out. But like when when the show was still running on CBC. Uh, I was exposed to it quite young uh, when nobody was, I guess, paying attention to uh, any potentially uh, corrupting elements that might be in the show. And and uh, hmm? that's something I would love to jump in about because I'm a bit younger than you. And I grew up mm-hmm. with the kids in the hall as a Canadian institution in reruns. And they would be on the Comedy Network <clears throat> at, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon when I was like getting home from school and stuff like that. So I would see a lot of it and how weird it was. And I couldn't fathom in like 2006, this would have been, I couldn't fathom that this was something that aired in prime time or even like just on a weeknight on the CBC. This, so this was unlike everything else that the CBC was airing at the time that the show was originally on. It, it, it was. I mean, I still think that there isn't anything that they followed it up with that's even comparable. I still think in sketch comedy that the, the people are still... I think because it's Canadian and it's not maybe... 
quite as uh, how should I put this? Because it was accessible through cable TV, certainly. That's the way a, a lot of people seem to have been exposed to it. I think it was Comedy Central started running it uh, in, in the States later on, kind of after the run was over already. A lot of people kind of got hip to it after that. But it it's still, because it wasn't an American product, I think a lot of people looked the other way on it. And uh, and and consequently like i still think that especially especially in sketch but in comedy in general i still think that there's a lot of there's a just a lot lagging behind this this show and these 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 minds that went into it they're just they are to me they're untouchable they are very much in the pantheon of like monty python as being uh just such an idiosyncratic happening and something so special and maybe something we'll never see again and yes, so the Kids in the Hall sketch comedy troupe from Toronto, the members originally from across Canada, and then they had mm. their show on CBC from 1989 to 94, I think that would have been, something like that. Yeah, and, and it was it was a co-production between CBC and HBO, so it was still running in the States, it's just it wasn't, HBO wasn't, didn't mean the same thing at that point in time that it means now. And the show produced by Broadway Video and Lauren Michaels, obviously of SNL mm-hmm. fame, and another Canadian who I think he was, un- I don't know, like uncharacteristically, it's like, it seems like he would not make this much of an effort to break people that weren't on SNL at almost any other point in his career. And in fact, I can't- Bruce and maybe Mark were writers on the show before the kids in the hall even had their TV show. And then Mark later went on to be on SNL. A very ill-fated stay with SNL. I don't think he did particularly well. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still, uh, I'm still a little surprised. I think it might've been just because they were, I mean, I'd, I, I would be guessing to, to uh, the, the affiliation with Lauren Michaels continues to baffle me a little bit. And I think he was quite hands off. I'm almost surprised they went as long as they did. Uh, just cause he, I, I, his concern didn't really appear to be on them in any kind of like paternal way. He didn't seem to steer the ship or even want to apparently like I've heard, you know, reports of him kind of dropping by once or twice a season. Like, the shortcomings of SNL in almost every era, or, like, the things, yeah, that seem like the thumbprints of Lorne Michaels, like, obvious failures, doesn't seem to be all over the kids in the hall, for the most part, but it seems like they, so much of the success, or the notoriety that they got came from him, so it really, an uncharacteristic uh, good deed from Lorne Michaels bringing the kids in the hall to the world. I, I think that that's a really good way of putting it, yeah, because I don't think, I think that he was, it was good for the world for him to have not meddled. Maybe it would have helped to, uh, you know, bolster them a little bit more had he been more involved. But I, I mean, as a consequence of, I guess you could call it negligence, we have this untouchable run of comedy. Like, there's just, there's nothing. To my mind, there's nothing else like it. If you've ever sat down to watch the entirety of the show, like from go, from episode one, they're they're amazing immediately. 
they're uh, and this kind of ropes back into you know you asking about my relationship with them. Um, they really, really molded me in a lot of significant ways. Politically is is a big one because it it, it early on um, acclimatized me to a, a a few ways of thinking, especially to do with LGBTQ stuff, like with with Scott Thompson being such a vocal out uh, performer. And kind of discussing the subculture, and uh, I mean, he made you know he made it so that you know John Waters was immediately palatable to me, and I think that that's through that's certainly through Scott Thompson, no question. Um, but also, they were doing all of these riffs on art house stuff, which wound up factoring into my life in a much broader sense. Uh, you know, moving forward, it made it so that when I encountered all of these things later in life, where you're supposed to take you know four or five years to start getting your head around these big concepts, I was already very much in deep water with them. Uh, I never, I didn't go through that awkward phase that I think almost all uh, North American boys have to go through where they're uh, kind of uh, flirting with homophobia and all that kind of stuff. I didn't do that. I was already used to the idea that one of the five funniest people on the planet was uh was gay and that there was nothing wrong with that and that he was equal to his the other participants so i didn't have to it wasn't this huge ledge i had to crawl over to to you know become more enlightened about that kind of thing and and artistically i think i was i was primed to take on more challenging stuff as a result of this like the impact that this show had on me cannot be overstated and i think it is the result of maybe lauren right because if lauren michaels would have been more present he probably would have said like can you uh you know bring these characters in more they they'll play better people are going to want to see more of this they're going to see want to see more of that and it seems like he just let them go and i think that that was the i mean what that that's such a gift to the world that he decided to do that i i get a real sense when i think about the kids in the hall that they're yeah very uncompromising because I think of a few years ago, there was like the CNN series, The History of Comedy, and I was watching that, and they were interviewing Mike Myers, and he was kind of talking about, well, kind of funny, they interviewed David Cross, who said that his favorite sketch comedy, so David Cross, famously of Mr. Show, and he was saying <laughs> that his favorite was Kids in the Hall, and then it cuts to... An, Zero surprise. Zero surprise. Exactly. But then it cuts to an interview with Mike Myers of uh, Love Guru fame. And <laughs> and he Good said point. he said that if his career went a different way, or if, you know, the cookie kind of crumbled a little bit differently, he thought that he could have been really good as one of the kids in the hall. And I really, you know, no disrespect to Mike Myers, who was funny on SNL and was funny and some of his has been funny in some of his film career and stuff like that. But like, he's much more safe and just kind of like the edges sanded down and stuff like that. He's, he's completely non-challenging. He's like, I mean, even saying broad is not being descriptive enough. He, he is the thing about comedy performers is they, in a lot of cases are inherently funny. And Mike Myers is an entertaining person. He's very, he is very charismatic and it's easy to listen to him talk. I actually prefer listening to interviews with him over his, you know, output for the most part. And, um, but he is, there's something about him that is, and I think it has to do with his appetite. He doesn't seem like he wants to challenge an audience. He only ever really wants to entertain, which is fine. I think as an entertainer, that's that's a mode of entertainer, certainly. But he has never shown ev any evidence that he wants to, like, blow a mind 
<laughs> yeah, and Mike Myers, as he gets older, he gets a bit of the older comedian sweatiness that I find very kind of saddening sometimes when you see, like, to throw out a couple names here, like a Billy Crystal or a Martin Short mm-hmm. type, where it's like they go on a talk show and they're just, like, desperate for those laughs and they're really just, like, going for it. I feel like the kids in the hall mm-hmm. in interviews then, now, together by themselves... They're mostly low key. They're kind of cagey. Some pretty of pretty much time. everybody, every everybody but Kevin. Kevin has never been low key, and is as somebody who has spent time with him, uh, he is incapable of being low key, no matter what the circumstance. <laughs> well, I was hoping that would come up at some point. Yeah, we have a bit of a because as working in Canadian entertainment a little bit, we've had some experiences with some of the kids. So through, and this was when we worked together. So I've met mm-hmm. Kevin and Bruce. You've met them and Scott as well. Uh, I've seen Scott perform. I haven't uh, like I, I met him. Like I shook his hand, but I didn't. I didn't actually spend any time with him. Some of our other coworkers uh, did, and uh, I think we're a little bit like. I mean, Scott is also inescapably Scott, and uh, and and I don't know how well he went over with some of the people he talked to because he's so verbose. Uh, and uh, I think he sounded like he was probably a lot of fun myself, but I, I I didn't I didn't spend that kind of time with him with uh with with Kevin I spent a fair deal of time with and Bruce I just uh kind of bombed in front of actually uh it's that's that's a whole that's a whole story but I I I, I met him on one occasion and then on an, on another I was surprised to find myself on stage in front of him uh eating shit I my story with Kevin when. We were working with him. So he was performing at the Broadway Theater in Saskatoon, where we both worked at the time. And I was there getting set up for the show, and he was doing sound check. And then he came out to the lobby and asked if he went and took a walk around the block, if someone would let him back in the building when he came. And he asked me, and I said, oh, yeah, sure thing, no problem. And he went, oh, yeah, thank you. I'm part of the show. And he was like the head. He was the headliner <laughs> of that show. He's the reason everybody was coming that night. He, he was the one performer at that show. And even if he says that at every venue he performs at, he he pulled it off with a plum. It was very funny. I believe that he meant it from talking to him for you know at length that afternoon. Uh, he has a uh, he has a tick where um, he he is needing to tell jokes quite constantly. To it seems like it's it's how he breathes. Uh, he is trying like, like on other people's laughs and he is very funny, but he is, he is like a machine gun of jokes and not every bullet is going to hit. And so when a bullet doesn't hit, he goes immediately into the Kevin McDonald that we all know where he starts, uh, becoming self-effacing because he, what he will draw the most attention to is when a joke doesn't land. And he'll, he just goes, Oh, I guess that wasn't very funny. Was it? Well, I'm not a very funny person. And like, he'll just start going into a character a little bit and right before on that night when I went up to tell him you know to give him his five minutes to stage time he said oh how many people are out there probably 10 or something like that and and I mean he knew that we had sold tickets in advance he knew the answer to that and I actually kind of told him that I was like oh you know we sold more tickets than that and he goes I know I just never think there's going to be anybody there I believe that he genuinely believes that 
I think that he, I, I think that that's part of the way he is broken, and I think that that's what a lot of what people respond to in Kevin. I think that that's one of the things about him that, like, I think those of us who are a little more insecure recognize ourselves in his his way of thinking, and so I think that that's you know. Each of them have things that you respond to, and that's, I think, Kevin... I mean, he's, it's written into so many sketches with him. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Kevin McDonald may have some uh, interesting mental health, which maybe draws into the movie that we're discussing today, Brain Candy mm-hmm. from 1996, turning 25 years old this year. And I actually think... So I had seen this... I've seen this movie a few times before, but the first time I had seen it... Would it have been in 2016? Was it a 20th anniversary when the Broadway showed it before? I believe it was. Yeah, we've we've run it a couple of times now, but I th- I know that it was an anniversary year, so that that sounds about right. Yeah, so I had seen this for the first time on the big screen in 2016, having seen the kids in the hall on TV, sort of after school and elementary school, and I would have been a bit of a comedy nerd at that time. Like I was definitely watching a lot of. SNL, Best of Adam Sandler, Best of Mike Myers and Will Ferrell, DVDs from the library around this time. And then I would see Kids in the Hall reruns. And I wouldn't quite get why it was funny, or I would find some of it funny and find some of it just very... Then like there would be like a chicken lady sketch or something, and I'd be like, I don't know what this is. And it would be a bit much for me. But then I came to really appreciate the Kids in the Hall later through high school and then into my university years. So when I saw Brain Candy for the first time, I was like primed as a fan of the show, ready to go in and enjoy the movie. And it's different than the show, but only slightly different. It's I guess it's it's, it's a plot for 90 minutes, which is different from the sketch in and of yeah, itself. There's a, there's a, there is a major through line. And a lot of, I think, uh, when, when sketch comedians kind of try to do uh, full-length films they there's a focus issue sometimes and this is a very focused effort it really is it, it tells a story it's got sort it's got text and subtext to it it's not just a string of jokes together and it's i saw it was mark in an interview mark mckinney commenting that he describes the kids in the hall comedy as light dark where it's sort of like <laughs> a light fun take on sort of like twisted dark subject matter and kind of putting like a fun twist on more heavier topics. And that's kind of what yeah. this movie is. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think that that's arguably that runs through a, a lot of what they, they have done uh, over, over the years. I, I, I think that that's almost undivorceable from th- their tone. That's actually very, uh, that's pretty spot on from him, uh, especially actually Mark. Mark, I think, exemplifies that more than almost any of the other ones, because his he I think out of all of them, his characters have a tendency to be the most broad, but he won't go full broad unless there's something uh, an underpinning that's, you know, quite properly uh, disconcerting about the character. <laughs> Do you think and I guess we'll be we'll be going a few different directions with this. So Mark was the one who had the brief stint on SNL. Do you think of the five kids in the hall, so we're dealing with Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, Kevin McDonald, and Scott Thompson. Did I get them all there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, you got them. Who would be the most likely to succeed on SNL of that five, do you think? I think that in theory, 
<clears throat> excuse me. I think in theory, Mark should have been it, but I don't know. Like based on what I've always heard about the writers' room and 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 everything at SNL, I didn't I didn't see them really feeding him what he did best. And um, uh, because I think the rest, I think they're all too idiosyncratic to exist on that show. I think that show needs the the most successful stuff on that show has a tendency to be much more homogenous. Uh, and, uh, and, and the most successful stuff is broad. I think he is the broadest, but he is still so weird. He's too much of an artist to be on the show. I think that he stood the best. I think anyone else would have bombed even harder. I, I like, I think I don't like, cause I, I shouldn't even say Mark bombed because I don't think he got the type of stage time that someone, you know, should expect if they are going to make it on SNL. He seemed very, very tertiary. And I mean, I'm, I'd like to say that was unfair to him, but I don't know that I believe personally that he belonged on that show. I just think that they are, if I'm being frank, those five guys are just, they are artists. And I don't think that that level, that degree of, uh, you know, just mad scientist way of thinking about, uh, about things really belongs on that show. So, I mean, it's kind of a long answer. I think that it should have been him, but it was never going to be him. Like, could you imagine someone like Bruce McCullough trying to fit in on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> I can't really. I can see him. I can see him being in the vein of what they have now with someone like Kyle Mooney and being more of a or an Andy Samberg doing like short films or doing something that's kind of separate from the rest of the cast but they give it like five minutes, you know, right before 1 a.m. or something like that. I can see a little bit of that. But again, I wasn't even watching SNL full episodes like in 1995. I see best ofs now and it seems like it was a funny Mm -hmm. show, but I'm sure some of those sketches and some of those cast members, the ones that don't have DVD box sets about them, I'm sure some of those sketches really were not that good at that era. Well, I mean, I can't even really speak to that. I was never an SNL guy. Um, Like, I I watched it at friends' places and stuff growing up, but I had, again, like, this this does make me sound like a snob, and I'm not intending for it to be that way, but, like, I had kids in the hall already. Everything else just seemed um, light. Mm -hmm. I was already responding to that a great deal as a kid, and, like, that's that's a through line in my... Uh, I guess what in my my cultural diet, I guess I like heavy stuff. I like to be challenged by things. I I like to leave. I like to leave a, an artistic experience with a lump in my throat. And Saturday Night Live is not going to do that to you. Occasionally, with kids in the hall, and I mean this factors into brain candy in a major way. You leave more depressed than alleviated, and um, and I think that that's exciting, and I like the challenge of that, and it, I like that I th- I'm still thinking about a sketch a couple of days later. Like I just, I and and you know sometimes they are just straight funny, and that's that. And I'm I'm sure that's you know out of the five of them, I'm sure somebody would resent that. I I you know all comedians seem to resent to a degree that 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 notion of the being philosophers being thrust upon them. I don't think that they should be. Uh, aiming to do that necessarily but i think that if you bring some weight and some thoughtfulness to your craft that it's going to be in the in the fiber of the thing and you won't be able to escape the fact that you've said something and uh they they just they always had more to say they were just always more interesting so i real artists can't help it yeah 
Yeah, you just can't. You can't. I mean, actually, as an example, this is definitely something predating you. Um, they, I don't know if they were just throwing him a bone. It was just one of those things where they were padding time. I was watching a full broadcast of Saturday Night Live at my aunt's house when I was staying at her place in Edmonton one time. And it was deep into the show. And there is a lost music video for uh there's a bruce mccullough put out a really really great record called shame based man oh a library classic for me j.s wood growing up absolutely it's it's one of the best comedy records of all time i and and when i say that i'm not just that's that is not hyperbole i think that yeah, no, uh, it's, it's not a stand-up. For anyone who's never heard it before, it's it's musical, but it's also like full-on comedy. But the re-listenability for it is is what makes it that cut above. Because it's like a good record. It's something that you can listen to over and over again, as opposed to like a stand-up record, which do run their course. But there was a video for the song, uh, what the hell is it called? I think it's called My Weekend. Which is a song, the one with the all the eraser head stuff. Yeah, in it. that's right. Yeah, and uh, there was a music video for that that ran on Saturday Night Live. Now I was in the middle of watching Saturday Night Live in this insane uh, psychedelic, disconcerting music video, which like kind of sort of peaks with with uh, Bruce McCullough talking about shoving rose petals up his ass. Uh, happens deep into a really milk toast. Uh, broadcast of Saturday Night Live and I I mean I was you know like I, I thought I was I mean I, I this is hyperbole I was gonna say I thought I was hallucinating when I think about it for years I thought maybe I had been because I couldn't track the music video down I did confirm with Bruce McCullough that that exists he just hasn't done anything with it but um, that stuck out like a sore thumb and was the best thing I saw that night for hands down, but I'm sure it was mainly just off-putting to anyone else who was watching it. Just, yeah, just something to fill in for like a Phil Hartman sketch that got cut for time or something like that. Yeah, yeah, completely. I, I That's that's all it was doing was there, but I mean, it was far and away, that was probably the best thing that ran on Saturday Night Live that year. Mm-hmm. It was, it's so, it was so, well, I had it on tape for quite a few years. Like I had a, I was taping, the, taping it because I didn't have cable at home so when I would go and stay with my aunt I would just tape whatever was on and uh and so I actually had that for quite a few years and I don't know what happened to it otherwise I would have forgotten about it because I just I took it home and watched it 1500 times right that's something but that's it, come it up was, on the show before the rewatchability of something you've taped off of television and the commercials yes. getting burnt into your head and stuff like that yeah so 1996 the show has been off the air for about a year and a half I would say and this is the era of Lorne Michaels doing a lot of those SNL spinoff movies, because in this period we had Wayne's World, Wayne's World 2, Coneheads, It's Pat, Stuart Saves His Family. I feel like there's another one in there, but really cranking out a lot of those SNL to big screen adaptations. And then this was a few years before superstar and night at the roxbury and the ladies man which kind of put a nail in that coffin for a while but i from what i understand this essentially like it was either like a sprockets movie or something else and lauren michaels opted to give the kids in the hall a movie rather than make another paramount snl adaptation so from the beginning we're on interesting footing here because this movie bombed very big when it came out yeah huge it was it was 
it was dismal how bad this movie did. And like those SNL movies in this era were not, you know, box office boffo, but I feel like almost anything like a Matt Foley motivational speaker movie would have been a huge hit compared to this. Well, I mean, even uh, I think the Stewart movie probably was compared to this did well. Also featuring Dave Foley, actually, now that, that I think about it. Um, but I mean, it was garbage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this there's a lot of factors going into why this wasn't received well. And I think that um, not all of them are actually speaking to the film's like detriment, really. I, 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 I wouldn't I, I don't have the answer on how you could have taken this to the public and had it work. I think it's a really like it's a legitimately challenging piece of film. Well, in this in a similar way, I full disclosure i like brain candy more than basketball but it's similar to the conversation i was having with luke pennock about basketball that like it's a it's a unique kind of uh obscurity sort of thing this kids in the hall movie but it's i can't imagine that they could have made more of these or i don't necessarily know if i do want for there to have been more like big screen kids in the hall movies because this one's kind of just perfect the way it is and it seems to capture a moment in time where the winds blew in a way that they could make a movie like this and have not that much interference because certainly if there was more interference uh one of the characters might have been cut out of this movie well i mean well one of them definitely would have been i think (laughs) but i mean as far as as far as interference is concerned i would have taken because I've heard them talk about how their big long-term plan was, oh, we'll do it like Monty Python. We had X amount of seasons of our show, and then we'll just do a movie every three or four years. Um, if the interference could have been kept to a minimal, I I would have taken more movies, it, it, as long as they were fresh, as long as they... But I, I don't know how you could make another brain candy. It would have to be something so different. But it it I I also don't think that it was destined to be. I don't think they're. I mean, it was. It's like the Mark McKinney question you asked. Like, I mean, would you have it? it were it good and set set up so that they could do what they wanted? Would I have taken that? Absolutely. Do I think that there was ever any chance that that was going to move forward? Never, never. Especially after this one, because this film is just like. I mean, this is in its spirit is so it's everything that's good about the kids in the hall you can't prevent them from being frankly like very punk rock about things they're just you cannot make them palatable for people who are looking to be you know entertained and to just have a laugh for the night or whatever you can't you can't make them behave and this was obviously a like a stressful like i i'm sure the performance of the movie didn't help but obviously the making of it was very stressful for the group because if I have my timeline right on this, Dave Foley quit the group, or the troupe, maybe you should say, while the while they were in maybe pre-production for this, but he was contractually obligated to be in it. So all five kids in the hall are in this movie. Dave Foley is not one of the credited writers. The film's credited to the other four kids, plus Norm Hiscock, who... He wrote on the show and then has gone on to write for like King of the Hill and a few different TV shows out there. Well, I think he's like one of the main showrunners on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So he's done really well for himself, actually. Definitely gone on to have a career for himself. Yeah. But yeah, and the, the Dave Foley at this time, because this was when the TV show had been off the air for a bit. So they're starting to form their separate careers. I don't know if news radio 
debuted before this movie came out, but they would have been like right in that same window of time. He, he, he was filming news radio. That was that was um, some of the some of the uh, what I do know about the production was uh, ostensibly that like Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley were like kind of writing partners like they were very, very, very close. And the way Kevin McDonald is described it is they basically broke up before brain candy like as a as a as a duo of like friends like they were like best friends and they they had a a huge falling out uh prior to the movie and a lot of it like dave had dave out of all of them had the most going for him and he had other he had other shit to do and that was that was news radio and so he was already yeah he definitely didn't want to be there he plays multiple characters. I think I read, I might not have picked this up just watching the movie. I think he's the only one who doesn't do drag in the film. Oh, I didn't think about that. I think he might be right. Yeah. And then off, in off the, the top uh, of my head, I can't think of any examples of him doing it. And then I was watching a YouTube, um, like a making of document, like a DVD extra or something like that. But I was watching it and Dave Foley was making a comment about like they asked how the movie came to be and he said oh you know we were out in the fishing boats all day long for three weeks and then we slapped together the script a week before filming and kind of phrases it like a joke or it's like you know like a sarcastic off-the-cuff thing but then you think about like he's not even credited as one of the writers so like he's just like shitting on the script for this movie that he doesn't that he's contractually obligated to be in in the making of well there's a there's a big retroactive discussion surrounding the movie between the kids because Dave was really critical of it when it came out too and basically just said it wasn't any good apparently he has come around to it and has kind of said like I was I think they've all they all seem to acknowledge that they can all be assholes at times and Dave I think has acknowledged that during that period he was particularly bad and hard on the rest of them and um uh, and and has since said that he I, I guess he actually thinks quite highly of the movie now but I mean he was not going to and it's funny because I think some of his performances are actually really very funny in the movie and and in terms of his non-involvement they that's written into the movie did, I, I, did you notice that with the scientists yeah yeah and and his, his performance the one that I'm thinking of that jumps right to mind as and I'm blanking on the name but Scott Thompson playing the older woman whose son comes and visits at Christmas. Yeah, Mrs. Herdicure. Herdicure, that's right. So uh, Dave Foley playing her, like, shitty son who comes to visit for 30 seconds on Christmas morning and leaves. That flashback, and then we see that, like, different versions of that flashback a couple of times, is one of my favorite parts of the movie. And uh, Dave Foley's performance there. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Well, and it also, but it 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 also in an as a performance, it's a one taker. Like, well, I I shouldn't say one taker; it's a single shot. But it does. It's him. It's his discontentment and it's his desire to leave that is very funny. If you know a little bit of the backstory, because he shows up, just does not want to be anywhere near what's going on. Turns around and leaves. It's very funny. <laughs> Asks where the eggnog is, takes a yeah. drink ostensibly of just rum, and then okay, kids, we're leaving. Yeah, and 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 I mean that gets to the heart of that whole kids in the hall thing too about like well and and this film specifically like that overarching joke that that could be the 
the the the nicest memory in someone's entire brain the like the greatest moment of their life is in and of itself so so dark it's so it's dark so and dark. sad <laughs> and when it's happening you can't imagine like you're you see it for the first time and it's like breaking your heart and then when it cuts back to mrs herdicure and she's so happy about it it makes it even sadder that like oh no she she likes this memory <laughs> this is something <laughs> well, these- no, that's that's what it is exactly. That that's the nicest thing that ever happened to her. And I mean, there's there's a big discussion about relativity there, which is important certainly. But it is, uh, I mean, as as someone who's uh, I think pretty like entrenched in like depressive art and behavior, I I feel very at home in this movie with with what it's uh, <laughs> digging into. <laughs> So how we should discuss the plot and the yes, through line of this film a little bit. How, how would we describe the plot of Brain Candy? It's a sketch film, so it's the troupe playing a variety of different characters, telling out this plot. They're not playing all the characters in the film, but for the most part, and there's not really any other, apart from cameos, no other big actors in this movie. No, no, other than, I mean, Brennan Fraser, who uh, the through line in our podcasting relationship is we're, we apparently we only discuss uh, Brennan Fraser movies. That is, I was actually thinking of that just as we were getting ready to record because I, I mentioned the Brendan Fraser cameo in my notes here. And then I remembered, yes, you came on my last podcast, Enter Sandman, and we talked about airheads. And yeah. just as we were getting ready to record, I think the phrase just bubbled back into my head. I think you referred to his performance in um, Airheads as being pre-full Hollywood disgrace. And I think now, <laughs> and I think we're out of that now. I think now we're on the other side of that and he's making his big comeback now. So That's what I keep hearing about. But no, sorry, I'm, I keep derailing it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, they, they play, I would say, I don't know, uh, of the of the pertinent characters, probably at least. 80% of them but they there there's too many big uh, big moments where they need more actors than just the five of them so there is you know they 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 play the all of the important roles and and the biggest laughs are all them for sure yeah and it's about the pharmaceutical industry it's about depression in society and how drugs can be made to kind of be a cure-all or to be a pill that you can depend on to fix all your problems but that kind of just obscures reality for people and it's not really living life to just feel one way all the time the description is for the drug like it's 72 in your head all the time something like that (laughs) yeah 72 yeah yeah, it's, it's like it's 72 degrees in your head all the time (laughs) and so the movie satirizes the pharmaceutical industry it satirizes i guess the things in society that cause everyday regular people to have depression and mental health problems through scott thompson's probably main character they all kind of have they play multiple roles and then they all sort of have their star role of the film in a way Mm -hmm. And Scott Thompson's is of a deeply, deeply closeted gay married man with children who is very out of touch with his real self until he takes the drug. 
Right. And, and and there's a lot of character building surrounding the fact that everybody knows but him and that they're, again, speaking to the kind of normalization of that, which like going back to the 90s, this is still a struggle for a lot of people. But um, everyone in his life would like for him to just realize who he is and be happy. <laughs> Which is like there's there's no there's no struggle for anyone but himself about him being gay. Everyone just wants him to be, including his wife and kids, would like for him to just come around to who he is and uh, and accept himself. Yeah, the, the, a very funny line when he's upstairs in the bedroom watching TV and his wife comes home and his kids are downstairs and his wife says, "Where's your father? I was upstairs masturbating to gay porn again." Yeah. Lots of lots of funny, lots of good one-liners in this movie. There's another part where during a Q&A, someone asks, like an old, old man tells Kevin McDonald, I want to be a scientist. Yeah, yeah I want to be a, yeah. The, 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 Do you have any that, advice for someone who wants to become a scientist? And it's like a 70-year-old man asking yeah. a 30-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's, I mean, even that is, they've built in a lot of complicated They've built in a lot of complicated uh, discussion into the, you know, surrounding somebody who is being repressed by, I mean, there's societal repression going on with this character. I can't remember the name of Scott Thompson's character because he's clearly Danny Husk from the TV show, but they he has a different name in it. He's playing his like boardroom, like uh, uh, blue or uh, white collar guy character that he plays from the tv show but i i know he's a different person but anyway he yeah like i mean there's they're they're talking about there's a degree of cultural depression being discussed there's like self uh uh deny just self-denial um there's just an for for a series of like kind of you know like comedy characters they're all like uh they they all have baggage and backstory in a way that makes them a little bit more uh i mean it, it does arguably make the jokes land that much harder too in terms of functionality it's not just that i want everything to be like a deep well of sorrow it's that the function of these being comedy characters hits that much harder because of the the amount of uh uh available uh uh palatability yeah scott thompson so yeah, he's Wally in this movie is the gay mm. father character. Him go. when he's in his pre like before he has his realization in the film, it kind of reminds me of when you see like Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock doing white guy voice. Seeing Scott yeah. Thompson do like straight man and play like manly man like heterosexual and when he gets busted in the public bathroom and then he's <laughs> trying to explain to his wife it's like, oh, and then suddenly I just had to take the biggest pee of my life, so I had to pull over to the rest stop. Oh, that's he, really, you know what? I'd never thought about that before. Those voices are very similar, aren't they? Yeah, just kind of like the, and I don't know, yeah, like that just like repressed, like Protestant style, like upright, very like stick up your ass. Mm-hmm. No yeah. pun intended. Um, um, And then, yeah, so in Bruce, one of his characters in this film, uh the depressed rock star, probably in a bit of a Kurt Cobain vein for this movie to have been from 1996. And certainly Kurt Cobain was a fan and friend of the kids in the hall. Yeah. The, the, that character Grievo is very funny to me. Uh, Cause that, that, that links back to my, my world significantly. And it, it, it also like from, from an art, well, we were talking about the artist perspective on this too. Like the, the, 
uh, not not just doubling down, but the investing in one's own depression and the committing to one's own depression that the, his character does, I think, is really is kind of a fascinating thing, and that that other people get to depend on your depression eventually because we see this uh, bar full of people who are all talking. They're they're not just talking. They're not talking about his music. They're all going. I hear Grievo's too depressed to go on like tonight, and they're like really excited about it and that kind of thing. I think is it, that's that is funny and interesting. Also, yeah, Bruce McCullough has uh, talked. Uh, uh, he has. He, there's a song on. Uh, he doesn't na- put, na- put do it by name, but there's a song on Shame Based Man about uh, the the day Kurt Cobain died. Actually, like he's he's somebody who's 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 got space in Bruce McCullough's brain, at least in the '90s, anyway. Yeah, and yeah, that is. Uh, he, he doesn't say happiness sucks, but he says something to that effect in front of the entire crowd of people. He's he, Mid- I, I, he, he, this is honestly a scene that I could probably do word for word, but what he, he says, fuck happy, fuck happy. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he says, I hear there's this new drug they make to or, uh, see. Oh, yeah, I just say I can do it word for word and then yeah. I stumble all over it. Yeah. Uh, I hear there's this new drug that makes you happy. I just want to say fuck happy. Yeah. And then everyone cheers and celebrates. <laughs> and that's kind of because the movie yeah what would you say is the when we're coming out on the end of it the moral of the movie it it's not that heavy-handed at the end of it when i think of heavy-handed i think of the ending of a south park episode or something like that where they'd really just like look at the camera and explain the moral to you this movie is not that it offers up lots of problems it offers not an objective view but it sort of shows well, the, 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 it, the very... it introduces the drug and then it lets the sort of natural course of what might follow from that play through. And then at the end, yeah, you get out of it understanding that maybe a drug that just keeps it 72 in your brain all the time isn't really living. And happiness is about understanding that you're going to have a spectrum of emotions and you can't control how you feel at all times. <laughs> Well, I, 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 it's funny that you should bring up the moral and and the ending, like where we're supposed to arrive by the ending, because this, that was one of the, that was some of the tampering that happened. It, it was the ending, uh, that, that, that ending is tacked on. It was supposed to have been, uh, a, an even more grim ending than, uh, than we, we get, which is funny because the ending is still pretty like, I mean, I don't even. I mean, it's more bitter than than sweet, so I would hesitate to call it bitter sweet. Maybe capitalized bitter and minor case sweet, um, because it turns into uh, it turns into like balance being the goal rather than happiness, and recognizing that there is such a thing as I mean that over idealization of uh, of happy uh be, being the sickness at some point and it being unhealthy and 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 all of that kind of thing but they didn't even get that in their original draft they didn't even get that far um it 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 uh, it, it took a it took a darker turn in the original one so it's it it is funny because they actually kind of had that uh th- that i i don't know I don't know whether they're happy with that ending. I think it's got a good laugh in it, so I I, I still think that that ending is quite funny, uh, and 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 works. But there is a narrator, uh, which is Mark McKinney playing uh, this this cab driver, who is who is telling you uh, 
uh, he literally says, uh, there, there's your happy ending really bitterly. That is not in the original ending. That is a that is a voiceover, and I feel like that was them saying that to the studio. Here's your happy ending, uh, angrily. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's some uh, some of that really great uh, baked in ambiguity that they are so good at, certainly. Um, and I don't think that they feel like they have anything sorted out. I don't think that they're big on preaching to people, really. Um, so I don't know that there is a capital M moral to be taken away from this. I think that, uh, like a lot of other really good art, I think that it presents a lot of ideas and it tries to un, you know, unpack them to a degree that we have something more to talk about and hopefully can keep moving forward on it. But it doesn't, uh, I mean, I don't think anyone's problems are solved. They, in order to get to a point where they feel like they, there's any resolution, they need to bring problems back into people's lives by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so director Kelly Macon, who, if I'm getting that pronunciation correctly, who had directed on the show and then has gone on to be, I think, mostly a Canadian television director, but gone on to have a career. Uh, how, how do you find this movie is directed? Like from a visual standpoint, what do you think of this? It's a mixed bag. Like there's a few things about it that I, I think that on the large whole that visually it's, I would I would describe it as maybe not particularly exceptional. Um, there's a few, there's a few interesting kind of uh, moments that are like kind of hovering over. I I believe it's Toronto, um, kind of hovering over downtown Toronto that are kind of fun and. Um, it's uh, it's but, definitely uh, but, very nice to see a movie shot in Toronto. Like, yeah, to see, like it's just different, and as Canadians, mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of the rest of it, it does just kind of look like the television show with a pumped up budget. It's not there. There isn't really anything. I don't think anything too terribly. It's documenting what is working best, which is like when you have you know five of the funniest people on earth interacting with each other. Like just kind of let the camera run. But it doesn't. I don't think at any point in time do anything very exceptional. Uh, like, like uh, pertaining to what you were talking about earlier with the the basketball episode that you just did, like, you know, the, the Zuckers being in there, they bring a very particular energy to it. And especially since like Trey and Matt uh, on, on basketball, like, I mean, they weren't, you know, writers or whatever, but in a lot of cases, some of that film, while it's kind of failing from a nuts and bolts perspective, you're, you're capturing two un uh, like completely unstoppably funny people and that's enough sometimes in this case the fact that it's not anything special from a filmmaking perspective is kind of almost to its benefit because it's not trying to it's not trying to get in the way of them doing what they do best and that's kind of what is working best about the film I think well and for Kelly Macon not having any kind of you know not going on to have a career in film where we can point to sort of like directorial signatures or anything like that. Comparing this to the other, like we were talking about before, the like SNL spinoff movies that could have been produced instead of this or that were yeah. produced alongside this, this certainly has more style on it and sort of like more of a visual craft put into it compared to any of those movies, which are, I feel like, the most journeyman like films you can possibly imagine like like talk about taking a sketch that's supposed to be five minutes and stretching it into a film 
this movie at certain points plays like especially the stuff in the labs there's sort of like sci-fi and not a horror horror in a like 1950s laboratory sense like yeah thunder in the background kind of like rain a dark there's a moodiness to this movie which is kind of for what it's worth they had to make an effort to include that well i think that that's all in the writing too though right like there was no way around this i'm sure if you you know i i think that there's moments on the kids in the hall show that uh i think capture um the the general mood of the writing even better than the than the film like when they go hard art house on doing some of their like their recorded sketches like just some of their film project stuff that i think they could have dipped into even further on this now that i think about it um it might have made it a little incohesive though if they would have done that too much so this was probably a happy medium but i think that that certainly the the from a like storytelling perspective it would demand more than just a uh I mean, you know, it's hard for me to say because I haven't seen Ladies Man or or, or most of those movies, but uh, like by comparison, I just think I like, haven't seen Ladies Man either. I think it's fair to say it's probably not something that's going to blow anyone's mind. I'll put my foot down with that supposition, and if anyone oh. wants to prove me wrong on that, they can write <laughs> in. If anyone wants to go to bat for the Ladies Man, yeah, you could. You could. Uh, that 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 would be an episode. <laughs> No, I I don't think like I mean nothing. I I mean it's 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 hard to uh uh like a lot of what the is when it when there's a lot of style going on, it's style supporting a performance, and so the performance is what like really shines, and um it it it, it, it there's there's some moments like some of the boardroom stuff is really good and like actually you know what yeah come to think of it actually some of the stuff that gets it when when things start spiraling out of control and we get almost the, almost these kind of um uh kind of i don't uh how should i put this like kind of almost borderline uh kind of you know 50s paranoia style things like almost like twilight zoney moments um are are some of those are really good like when people start going into comas towards the end and stuff like that there's something kind of surreal about it so yeah you know what i'm probably not giving him enough credit well and i kind of like there's when so yeah gleaminex is the name of the antidepressant when it's getting ready to go to market there's some like production line sequences and the drug for what it's worth it's visually compelling on screen like this movie obviously does have a cult following to it well undeniably has a cult to it but if it had a larger like impact when it came out or had been Mm -hmm. made bigger a bigger splash you could think that the bright orange gleaminex they're not even like pills they're like the size of like campinos or something like that and that's (laughs) another thing it's the movie's called brain candy and i think this movie does portray pharmaceuticals very much as something people treat like candy that it's something that you like snack on when you're in the mood for it. And that's not really Mm -hmm. how you should be taking medicine, but the candy when it's on screen and in the end of the film, like any scene where there's big bowls of it on a boardroom table or in a large crowd or something like that, it really is kind of striking. I found. Yeah, no. Well, and again, like it looks like the, the boardroom, the way it's set up, it's very, uh, uh, 
you know, it, 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 everything is very deliberate about that stuff. Some of the more controlled environments are quite good. Some of the some of the suburban ones are 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 kind of nice too. Um, some some of what I was talking about when it, when the camera was flying around earlier, when they're going from building to building and 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 dipping into like people's therapy sessions and and that kind of stuff. I I, I just think maybe I could have had a little bit more. Well, you, I think you were even talking about the weather. Um, like like earlier on in the film, the the, the cameras cruising around Toronto and there's uh and, and, and kind of taking little slices of people's experiences and there's a storm on while that's going on and it has a very particular mood if that would have been a little bit more um uh, reoccurring I think that that would have played to the film like I uh, films uh benefit a little bit um so yeah like it, it did definitely like I mean I love the movie I if if, if I thought that the any of the filmmaking decisions were to its detriment it might be a bit of a problem i just think that it it knew how to it knew how to pump the brakes on not trying to show off from a directorial perspective as much as a lot of other directors are you know want to do have you ever seen um and uh, why on earth would you but there is still a possibility you might have have you seen the siskel and ebert review of this movie yes i have i very, certainly have very split down the middle on this one so gene siskel Seems to pre- he predicts that it'll become a midnight movie, which is essentially what it was when I saw it, mm-hmm. and he seems to be on board with the audaciousness of it and how, you know, for American film critics who might be sort of tangentially familiar with the kids in the hall, he seems really into it and on board with it. And then Ebert, he doesn't even want to talk about it. Yeah, Ebert, I, who I actually think has a tendency to argue his perspective a little bit better. Uh, unfortunately, Siskel, I think for uh, he like had I been a completely uh, walking in naked to that review and had never heard of the kids in the hall before, I wouldn't have been convinced by I don't think Siskel did a particularly good job of arguing his case. Um, and Ebert didn't either. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I it, it's it's kind of overall a kind of a dismal review in general well, that's the um, thing. siskel makes a point in that of because ebert's like i i hated it i don't want to talk about it and Siskel yeah, he says, just we, get, we get paid off. to talk about it we're, yeah. we're film critics if you don't like it you have to say something about it yeah yeah that's it exactly but i mean that was that show at its worst was often that way though like i mean i you know like i'm movie idiot like I, i've gone back and watched tons of siskel and ebert because it's interesting sometimes they they do some you know they do some compelling uh like especially earlier on they do some compelling stuff they they do some infuriating stuff on those shows too but like i think that film begs to be discussed i think that you kind of get the most out of a film with with a discussion about it and not like a uh, you know, a star summarization. I don't think that that's usually particularly not not fair, a cursory whether... forty five word review in the Leonard no, Maltin book. You, yeah, I just don't think you get much out of that. Um, whereas, you know, at one point in time, like you had, you know, I, I, this this is this is you know, like the, the way people used to write about film is different than the way they write about it now. And um, and in terms of discussion too, like even I mean, I always bring him up on anything that I'm on and I know he's like he's mainstream in another area of the world so it's kind of lame to bring him up but Mark Kermode from the BBC I think does an amazing job of I find his um uh for somebody who he's I would say he's my favorite film critic I only agree with him about half the time but I think he has a compelling 
uh, and engaged interest in 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 what he is discussing, and like that that should be that can't be overlooked. Whereas like <laughs> that Siskel and Ebert review, yeah, like yeah, Ebert literally says he doesn't want to talk about it, and how lame is that? Like, how much did he just get paid for to you know be on television to discuss a film? Like, can, I just yeah, that 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 I find that review is frustrating insofar as. Uh, I mean, Ebert is just being lame and Siskel is not doing a particularly good job of uh, making a case for the film. Not that I think it would have helped the film out a ton or anything like that, but it's, you know, it's uh, the whole the whole thing is just I I, I, I find that one that particular one a little bit on the dismal side. It's uh, uh, unfortunate for the for the movie, but uh, not surprising. Again, I think that the 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 subject matter is such that I think this film was always destined to have a very difficult time finding a home outside of uh, you know the the shelves of people who are looking for this particular style of content it's just it's such a specific piece i know i've used the word a couple of times but it's 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 such an idiosyncratic uh work and in comedy specifically that is not what you know the general public are looking for well this movie it's 25 years old it's kind of hard to think that like yeah you say the way people have talked about or the way people write about films has changed and certainly Mm -hmm. has but like just the whole landscape of distribution that like Paramount Pictures was hoping that this was going to make like a hundred million dollars like Wayne's World 2 did or something like that. Like they were expecting they were going to have a big hit on their hands or, you know, at least initially. Nowadays, a movie like this, you know, if they made an, you know, I think you should leave full length movie or something like that. And I know that's on streaming already, but like Mm -hmm. something like this wouldn't even be given the opportunity to have a wide theatrical release anymore. This would be like a movie that goes to Netflix or to Hulu or something like that. Amazon prime, these projects Mm -hmm. that, that are destined to become cult classics and to become like something that in 20 years is going to be like famous for having bombed and how, how did bomb? It's so good. It's like, gone is the era of studios and distributors having to eat shit on something like brain candy that they know a Friday night audience in Iowa is not going to go see. Yeah. You have to like eat crow releasing the movie and having it bomb to then have it gain respectability later. I feel like we've Mm -hmm. lost that kind of trajectory for these sorts of cult films. We have, there's another, I mean, there's a few other lines, like insofar as I I think that there's a, a, where that, all that money went that they invested into this project was in a lot of areas that they probably still could have just as easily gotten the movie made. They just, you know, like a few people were being paid too much or like, you know, like the marketing budget was such that it, 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 it was maybe a little out of control, all that stuff. If you tightened it up, I still think you wind up with the same movie. I think that there's nothing about the movie that looks particularly like huge budget. I think it was just it was a Paramount movie and Paramount spends X amount of money on a movie like this. And I think that in, you know, the era of streaming or whatever, I think a movie like this can, in theory be made i don't know that the i don't know who is interested in how in in it like it seems like this this would be more of a series conversation i think that like i i you know when it comes to this type of thing people would rather see something that they can keep people attached to their tv for like 
eight hours as opposed to like just a film. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know that you get to make this movie exactly anymore, but I think that there's other, there's other roads to getting something like this made now. It, but, but in, in with the, uh, it's just, it is funny to me that to think that that this is even a, I don't think of it as a Paramount movie. Really, I think it was it was the Lauren Michaels connection that got it all of that cash. I just don't think that it even I, the, the the budget, while meager compared to a Paramount, any other Paramount movie, still doesn't make any sense to me to look at this because there's not much going on in it that requires that degree of funding. <laughs> yeah, um, especially with the actors. There's five five leads in it, for God's sake. Like who, who that, also that wrote the movie. everything. Yeah. Like, come on. Um. So I've I've got some closing a uh, couple more notes here. Do you have any last thoughts on the film itself? I will never run out of things to say about the movie to be honest. So I don't I don't know that I have any specific closing thoughts necessarily because I mean we could we could start this all over again. I could go from square one and not talk about any of the same stuff to be honest. Uh I think that for anyone who hasn't seen it, I think that it's uh I think it's a really important work i i think that especially if you even have just a tangential interest in kids in the hall that it's worth checking out um i think that uh it's one of the most kind of adept uh long-term comedy uh pieces about um about depression that doesn't get so far into the depression that it ceases to be funny because uh, it's funny all the way through, but it's also deeply, uh, you know, disturbing all the way through as well. It, funny it just, and it, incredibly dark and morbid yeah, in yeah, equal and, measure. Yeah, and I think that everyone likes to think they're prepared for all of those things. And I think that this this film is a good uh, good test of that. Because, I mean, I, you know, I just, just watched it again for I don't know how many times I've watched this fucking movie. <laughs> Uh, but I, I laughed all over again. I thought the whole thing was just as great as I did the last time I saw it. And I also like had a great, big, huge sigh at the end of it as well. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it elicited, uh, the same type of reaction out of me that, um, like, like it was a, you know, a mix of all of the best, like, you know, broad comedy that really, really like hits you in all the easy ways. But at the same time, I walked away with a bit of a cloud over me and I, I'm, I'm looking for that when it comes to just art in general. So I, I don't know. I think that I, I think that most people can't go without, uh, I don't think anyone should be without kids in the hall in their lives. So I'm, I'm maybe the wrong person to ask about that though. <laughs> Um, so I have this here. The movie came out April 12th, 1996. And I went on boxofficemojo.com and looked up the release weekend. Would you care to wager a guess, Scott, where this film opened on its opening weekend? Where it opened? Uh, Um, In the rankings. Yeah. Oh, uh, I actually, I think I might, I might know the answer. Um, is it number 10? It's number 13. Opened in 13th place at the box office. Lucky number 13. Behind such films as Primal Fear, James and the Giant Peach, Fear with Mark Wahlberg, and then The Birdcage. I'll never forget. Which kind of interesting. The Birdcage, I I don't know if it was the opening weekend for that one as well, but another quite gay comedy film for just the Mm -hmm. mid-90s. And a movie that was a a big hit back in its day. I, I, I never saw that one, actually. 
Birdcage is kind of funny. I, I remember I've, trying, I've always heard that. Yeah. Trying to watch it as a kid and I didn't quite get it. And then I saw it later as an adult. And it's, it's pretty funny. Well, thanks for coming on, Scott. Thanks for talking about Brain Candy. It was a delight having you on. You're always, uh, you make for a very wonderful guest. So I was really looking forward to having you on. And this was a great time. Great time yeah, talking about we kids in the to... hall. Because when I, I was about 20 when we met. And like I said, kids in the hall among a few different other things, it was something I was aware of and something I was interested in or had a history with. And then through meeting you and knowing you and being under your influence, Kids in the Hall is one of many things that you helped me to appreciate in a new light and uh, part of the big impression that you've made upon me. So this was a great time talking about this with you and I was really happy to have you on. And yeah, thanks for for everything. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I thank you so much for uh, for thinking of me and for putting up with me uh, for another uh, another podcast episode. Yeah. You, me, and Brennan Fraser, man. You can come on next time, and we'll talk about uh, Blast from the Past. Maybe I'll have to see it. I still haven't seen that one. That uh, no, we won't do it. If you haven't <laughs> seen it, I wouldn't force you to see that movie for the first time. But thank thank you i've i I have seen the trailer and i don't have any interest so so i i appreciate your doing that for me see the favor has been returned there we go all right well (laughs) maybe we can have you back on again sometime and for the time anytime anytime yeah thanks a lot scott thank you Strange occurrences await a young bride-to-be at the manor of an 18th century English lord. Peter Cushing and Stephanie Beecham star in And Now the Screaming Starts on tonight's TV50 Late Movie. And thus concludes our World Suicide Prevention Day special on Kids in the Hall Brain Candy. That's kind of a calendar coincidence with our release date for this episode that I just noticed as I was doing the intro here. Thanks again to Scott for coming on to talk about the film. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, tell a friend, check out Scott's bands, Ken Mode, Adeline, Grey Light District. You can support all of them on Bandcamp would be the best way. Please do come back in two weeks where I will be joined by another musician uh, cut, cut from a slightly different cloth, me listener. I'll be joined by Douglas Evans, also known as Juglas, also known as Dr. Booty Quiver a former member of Tasty Juice of Ridiculous. This guy is a veteran, I'm telling you. And he comes on to talk about a film that turned 20 years old last month from August 2001. We are talking about Jerry Zucker's Rat Race, starring Rowan Atkinson and Cuba Gooding Jr. and Whoopi Goldberg and John Cleese, and it's going to be great. If you haven't seen this film, I think, uh, I don't know if we sell it. It's hard to say. Uh, But you can find out in two weeks, so please do that. Thanks.